most of the time when I ask a person, do you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Depending on the kind of audience that I'm addressing, most people say, yes, yes, I do. In fact, I would dare say if we were to ask you as a group this afternoon, do you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? I think you would say yes. Now, my next question often is, how do you know that? And my answer that I most often receive is, well, the Bible says that it's the Word of God. And that's exactly right. The Bible does say that it's the Word of God. In fact, you listened to the probably most famous verse in the Bible that talks about the inspiration of the Bible for the reading there in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you know if you started in Genesis and you went through the book of Revelation, you would read that the Bible claims to be inspired over 2,000, about 800 times. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah alone, some type of claim to inspiration is mentioned about 540 times. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and God said to Jeremiah, and God spoke to Jeremiah, and the Lord said to Jeremiah, and the burden of the Lord came to Jeremiah, etc. 540 times or so. If you were to go to Second Peter, look there in chapter 1, about verses 19 and following, you would read that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private. That word in your translation might be interpretation. The actual word there in Greek means origin. No prophecy of Scripture is of any private origin, but holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What that means is that people didn't make it up according to what the writers are saying. So if I were to ask you, hey, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Most everybody says yes when I'm talking to audiences like this. And then when I ask them, how do you know that? They say, well, the Bible says it is. And verily, verily, it does say that it is. In fact, I've got about 1,350 pages in my Bible. If this Bible claims to be inspired about 2,800 times and it's got 1,350 pages on average, how many is that per page? Twice. About twice per page, this book claims to be inspired. And so lots of times I will say, okay, that's great. Yes, the Bible does claim to be inspired. But so what, with all due respect? So what if the Bible does claim to be inspired? You know, there are other books that claim to be inspired, aren't there? The Book of Mormon claims to be inspired. The Hindu Vedas claim to be inspired. The Quran claims to be the inspired word of Allah that is perfect. There are at least nine books that make a serious claim to inspiration. And so if we were just to say this book claims to be inspired, that really proves absolutely positively nothing. I could stand here this afternoon and say, my name is Kyle Butt, I'm the President of the United States of America. Kyle Butt is my name, and there's one President of the United States of America, and that is me. I am the President of the United States of America, Robert Kyle Butt. Is that true? No, it's not true. Well, what if I repeat it 3,000 times? Would that make it any more true? You know, just because the Bible claims to be inspired almost 3,000 times, that doesn't mean you can use that as evidence for its inspiration. And so lots of times then the next question I ask is, okay, if you can't use the Bible repeatedly claiming to be inspired as evidence for inspiration, what then do you use to prove that the Bible is the Word of God? I mean, I dare say that you've arranged much of your life based on what the Bible says. 
You are worshiping here on the first day of the week, eating the Lord's Supper as Acts chapter 20 verse 7 explains to us should happen, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and following. If you were to say, hey, have you arranged lots of your life based on this book? The answer is yes. But then what I find is, when I then probe a little deeper and say, okay, you can't use the Bible claiming to be inspired as evidence for the inspiration, what do you use? Well, lots of people, here's what they say. Well, I, I believe it by faith. At first, that sounds kind of good, doesn't it? I mean, because Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, For without faith it's impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that He is, that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Do you have to have faith in order to please God? Yes. And they say, I have faith that the Bible is the Word of God. But here's what they really mean. What they really mean is, I don't have any answers. I can't explain to you why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I've just got this warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart. And this warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart is what I use to direct my thinking and my belief. And because I feel it so strongly in my heart, I don't really have answers that I can give you to justify the belief. It's just so warm and fuzzy in my heart. That's why I believe it. That's what their definition of faith is. Now, the Bible's definition of faith has never been that. In fact, if you were to look in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, you would see that the text there says that Jesus presented himself alive by many, now listen to it, infallible proofs. Do you know what infallible proof is? That means if you're thinking rightly, there's no possible way you can look at this and come to a wrong conclusion. Now, you could look at it and come to a wrong conclusion if you're not thinking rightly, and you can ignore the evidence if you'd like, but you can't, thinking rightly, look at the evidence and come to a wrong conclusion. That's an infallible proof. Is the Bible the inspired Word of God by many infallible proofs? You see, because if a Muslim stood up here and said, I believe that the Quran's the word of Allah, and I got a warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart. In fact, I believe it so much that I'll blow myself up in the middle of a marketplace, and that's how strongly I believe the Quran is Allah's word. Well, if you're going by a fuzzy feeling in your heart, that's a pretty strong, firm feeling that you would be hard-pressed to argue with if that's the kind of evidence you were using to claim that the Bible's the inspired word of God. But it's not. In fact, what we can show is that if there is a book that is divinely inspired, it has to have characteristics and qualities that no human being could come up with. It would have to do things that humans can't do. Uh, For instance, if this book actually was from God, it would have to, every time it makes a historical statement, be exactly right. Now, I've got an entire lesson on that that I don't have time to deal with, but what we could show is... History books are rewritten, 2nd edition, 3rd editions, 4th editions, about every five years. The Bible's not. Every single statement that it made historically is exactly right. That is superhuman. Another thing that is superhuman is if you had 40 different authors writing over a period of 1,650 years, and they were writing in three primary different languages, and yet they wrote 66 different books, and not a single time do any of those books contradict another book. That is superhuman. If you had 40 authors and you took them all from Vanderbilt University right now and you asked them to write you an essay on the causes of the Civil War, include names of battles, how many people died in battles, who were the commanders of those armies, etc. After you got those 40 different back from men educated in the same place, at the same university, in the same language, at the same time period, do you think that you would have some contradictions? 
You certainly would. And those men were in the same time period and they had been studying the exact same material. And yet we've got 40 different authors writing 66 different books over a period of 1,600 years and there's not a single contradiction. And some people like Voltaire have spent their lives trying to find a single contradiction and never found one. You know what Voltaire said, the French humanist? He said, I've done such a great job at showing the Bible's full of contradictions. He said... Now that I'm finished with it, the only place you'll ever find a Bible is in a museum in a hundred years from my death. That was, I think, what, in the uh, 1600s? Have you guys ever even read any Voltaire? And yet this book is the most widely circulated book in the entirety of the world every single day. This book has been distributed to the tune of, they don't have a clue how to estimate anywhere close, but they say maybe 30 billion copies. The next book that's the closest to it is a little red book in China called The Book of War, and they say it might have been distributed to the tune of 900 million copies. Almost 1 billion. Almost. And yet this book has gone 30 billion. It's translated in whole or in part in over 2,200 different languages. It's gone into 175 different countries. In the United States alone, $200 million every single year is spent on printing, distributing, selling the Bible. The number one bestseller every single week of every single year, you go to the New York Times bestseller, you won't see it on the top. There's a little asterisk there. You go down to the bottom, the asterisk says perennial bestsellers excluded. You know what perennial bestsellers excluded means? We got tired of putting the Bible up here. And so we quit. And the Bible's number one every single week of every single month of every single year, but we are tired of putting it there, so we just say perennial bestsellers excluded. Now, If we wanted then to show that the Bible predicts the future, we could. We could show that prophets like Ezekiel nailed in specific detail things that didn't happen for three, four, five hundred years after them. There are over 200 messianic prophecies that detail the life of Jesus Christ that came to pass, some of them a thousand years after they were written. Could we do that? Yes, I've got a whole lesson on that. I'm going to deal with this afternoon my favorite material, and that's science and the Bible. You see, this book started being written in 1450 B.C. That's approximately, you're looking at what, about uh, 3,500 years ago. You would think that if this was just written by a human, then many of the human errors that fill the writings of the other ancient people would be in this book, if this is just human divine. In fact, the Bible says that Moses was educated in all of the ways of the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians were recognized worldwide in ancient history as being the best doctors in the world. In fact, you might recognize the name of Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede had Egyptian doctors that waited on him hand and foot for the entirety of his time as king. And here's why. Because Egyptians were known to be the most educated, knowledgeable doctors in the world. We have found a papyrus called the Ebers papyrus. And the Ebers papyrus has over 600, I think about 40, different medical prescriptions that the ancient Egyptians followed. Some of them are outstanding, would still help you today. If you get burned, put aloe vera on it. Okay, great. We would still do that. In fact, as I was growing up, my dad had an aloe vera plant there in his bedroom. And if we got burned on something, he would go cut a little piece off and put that right on our skin. Aloe vera is great for burns. The Egyptians had nailed that uh, looking at about 3,000 years ago. About a third of them. Out of the 640, about a third of them were very beneficial and actually help you. 
Now, about a third of them were neutral. Wouldn't help you a bit. If you were going bald, rub dirt on your head. Something like that. Uh, well, you know, it didn't help, didn't hurt. You're not going to get sick from it, no problem. About a third of them, sorry guys, dirt's not going to do it, I'm sorry. Uh, about a third of them wouldn't help you a bit. They were just totally neutral. Now, about a third of them would kill you or hurt you extremely badly. In fact, do you know what they thought was great for you? They thought that pus was good for you. That you needed to fester as much pus as possible if you wanted to get better. And if you came into an Egyptian clinic, however they were arranged, and you had a bad splinter, well, what they prescribed for you was worm blood and donkey dung in that splinter so that you would fester a bunch of pus and that would be great for you. Uh, you know what worm blood and donkey dung are full of? Tetanus spores. They were literally injecting tetanus into their patients who came to them with splinters. Now, out of 640 prescriptions, about a third of them, 120 of them or so, maybe a close to 200, they were harmful. They had an entire section of their medicine called excrement medicine, where they would use excrement to heal stuff. Needless to say, it was not only ineffective, but it was very harmful. Now, if Moses was dedicated in all the ways of the Egyptians, and those were the most brilliant doctors at the time, you would expect to have some layover, some follow-over, follow-through of the Egyptian bad medical practices. Now, I guess you know where I'm going with it. There are in the Bible. In fact, not only are there no negative medical practices that would actually harm a person, but some of the things that were written by Moses were so far advanced from anything medically that anybody had ever seen, we didn't figure them out until just a few hundred years ago. Let me give you an example. If I were to ask you how George Washington died, could you tell me? Now, they say George Washington was an amazing man. In fact, they say he would charge right through the middle of a battle and bullets would whiz by him. In fact, they said at the end of some battles, he would take off his shirt and there would be a bullet hole that would look like it would have gone straight through his torso and he would be unscathed. They said they had never seen anything like it. Lots of people who studied George Washington. He died in 1799-1800. He went outside. He was going on a walk. It was uh, later in the year, as I recall, and he was not bundled up very well. He caught a chill, they said in 1799-1800, and they brought him in. They said, call the doctor. The doctor diagnosed him with a chill, said he needs to have serious medical attention applied to him. And you know what serious medical attention applied to him in 1799 was. Well, he had bad blood, didn't he? And so they felt like you needed to remove that bad blood to help George Washington live longer because his blood was killing him. And so that's what they did. They bled George Washington. And you know that was a very common practice. There was a number of ways that they could do that. Sometimes they would take actual leeches and put those leeches on a person. Other times they would cut a, an X shape right there in the middle of a person's elbow and their veins and arteries there to literally bleed them, take their blood out because their blood contained bad vapors and that's what they needed to remove in order to make sure they got better. Now I was talking to my barber about this. In Florence, Alabama, barber shops, he had a sign that said, uh, haircut, shave, tooth pull. And I was talking to him about that. He said, oh, yeah, used to barbers did all kinds of minor surgeries. In fact, bleeding was one of the minor surgeries that barbers did for years and years and years. He said that, now that is, that's a, that is a, uh, 
interesting phone ring there. I, I hadn't heard that one yet. I mean, what, what is that? Some kind of a disco music or something, huh? Okay, well, well, well. Anyway, where was I? It's kind of hard to... Uh, still going? There we go. What is that, an alarm? You might need to pass that. I might need to analyze that thing. The other day I was uh, speaking at a place and the preacher stood up and he was about to make the announcements and his phone started ringing. And so he answered his phone and picked it up and said, oh, hi. He said, oh, I appreciate that, honey. Thanks for helping me remind everybody to turn their phones off at the beginning. And I thought that was a very unique way to do that. So maybe we should try that next time. Let's see. Where were we? Yes, the barbers. The uh, poles, the uh, white and red and blue spinning poles, here's where he said that came from. He said the barbers, if you went into the barber for a minor surgery, like a being bled or a tooth pulled or something like that, he said they would wash the blood up with white towels and they would wring them out and flip them around their poles out front to dry them out. But he said as they were drying out, that uh, stain would be left on the pole and so the pole had a white and red stripe to it. And he said the blue was significant of veins. And so the white and red and blue was to signify the minor surgeries that barbers would do. They would bleed people. Now that was in the 1800s. They bled people to try to get them feeling better. You and I both know what happened there. George Washington died because they took his blood out because blood is not what kills you. You need every ounce of your blood. In fact, if you have a problem and you start losing blood, what do they do to keep you alive? I had a good friend who his wife was giving birth and somehow there was a a very disastrous happening there and they had to give her, I think, 45 units of blood to keep her alive and that was the only thing that did keep her alive was them pumping blood into her. Now, we know that. This is 21st century United States of America. That's fundamental knowledge. Everybody understands that. Uh, They didn't know it in the 1800s. You know, that's only, what, 200 years ago? Now, I want you to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 17. In Leviticus chapter 17, you're going to start in verse 11, and you're going to read this. Leviticus 17, verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. Look at verse 14. For it is the life of all flesh, its blood sustains its life. What keeps stuff alive? Blood. Who's writing that? Moses. When is he writing it? 1450 B.C.? When did we learn that? We didn't learn it until the mid-1800s. That blood sustains life. We were literally bleeding people to death because we thought that their blood was killing them. And yet Moses all along had uh, an organism's blood sustains its life. Was that a lucky guess? Just so happened Moses nailed it and we missed it for 3,000 years? Well, you could say, well, that's a lucky guess, but how many times are you going to use that? Really do this all, all afternoon. I can show all kinds of examples. That row is being quite noisy right there, isn't it? Hey, I understand that happens to me all the time. Now, let's let's go to Genesis chapter 17. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 17. And you're going to read something else that is quite interesting. In Genesis chapter 17, you'll probably recall Genesis chapter 12. God came to Abraham 
Abram at the time. And he said, Abraham, I want you to get away from your father's house and away from your kindred. I want you to go to a land that I'll show you. And I'm going to bless all the nations through you. Now, five chapters later, you get to God solidifying this covenant between him and Abraham. And he says, all right, Abraham, there's going to be a difference between you and all the rest of the world. And he said, that difference is going to be in your flesh. I'm going to give you a symbol of our covenant in your flesh. And you look there in chapter 17, verse 12. And here's what the text says. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male in your generations, he's born in your house or bought with your money from any stranger who is not your descendant. Now you stop right there. You say, okay, the sign of the covenant in the flesh of Abraham was that all the males were to be circumcised on the eighth day. I will understand that, no problem. Now, have you ever stopped to wonder why day eight? It's not one week. I mean, one week would be the seventh day. Uh, why not day ten? Day 10 will be a nice round number, the 10th day. But what about the third day or the second day? What does it take for blood to clot? Well, for blood to clot, it takes three things. Platelets, vitamin K, and prothrombin. Now, prothrombin is produced in the intestines when there is enough vitamin K in a child's body to produce the prothrombin. Vitamin K has to come first and then prothrombin is produced. Do you know that when a child is born... His or her level of vitamin K is extremely low. In fact, it's so low that prothrombin cannot be generated in high enough amounts for blood to clot accurately. In one out of every 200 babies, if you were to do a surgery between day one and day seven, that baby would most likely hemorrhage to death because there's not enough vitamin K and prothrombin produced to clot their blood. Now, if you were to do that surgery on 199 babies, you wouldn't see, in many respects, you wouldn't see anything negative happen. Sometimes they would bleed a little more, whatever, but they wouldn't die. Only one out of every 200 babies die of bleeding to death because their blood doesn't clot well enough. Well, it just so happens that on day eight, the prothrombin level of a child is 110% of what it will be for the rest of the child's life. Vitamin K starts being produced and producing prothrombin from days 5 to 7. On day 8, the prothrombin level is 110% of what it will be for the child's rest of his life. It will never be in the rest of that child's life as high as it is on day 8. What's the perfect day to do surgery on a child. Day 8, the perfect day. Now, we don't do those surgeries now on day 8. Why? Because we take vitamin K and inject it into the child right when the child is born. We then cause that prothrombin to start being generated and we can do that surgery within days 1, 2, 3, or 4 because we know that vitamin K is what it takes to cause blood to clot. How in the world would Moses have known that? And if you would have tried to experimentally figure this out, you would have had to do a experiment, I mean, 200 experiments on babies before you ever found one that bled to death. And then you would have had to have said, okay, this baby bled to death because he didn't have enough vitamin K in his body. Now, how in the world is Moses or Abraham going to know that vitamin K is what it takes to clot blood? Now, what are you going to say? Another lucky guess by Moses? How many times are you going to say that? 
He just happened to guess right every single time. And there's not a single example of a deleterious, harmful prescription in all of the Mosaic law. Now, remember what the Mosaic law was designed to do. These guys, there were 680,000 fighting men, which gives you probably about 2 million Israelites. They're wandering around in the wilderness. What's one of the main points of the law of Moses? Sanitary, hygienic regulations to keep them alive in the wilderness. That means Moses is writing sanitary and hygienic laws and food consumption laws, etc., that are designed to keep two million people alive. Now, if that's the case, wouldn't you expect him to have made errors somewhere along the way? I mean, we've got the FDA that's been studying this stuff for years, and still they let us consume stuff that later we find out is no good. And yet there's not a single one of those errors in the Bible. Let me give you another example. I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 19. And I want you to hold your finger right there. And I'm going to tell you a story about a man named Ignaz Semmelweis. In 1847, now you understand the year right now is 2013. 1847, you're looking at 160 years ago. That's all, 160 years. There's a guy by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis in Vienna, Austria. And he was a baby delivering doctor. That's what he did for a living. In fact, he went from Budapest to Vienna because Vienna was supposed to be the place where the most educated doctors were. He studied under the most educated doctors and he was made the head clinician at the Division I lying-in unit of Vienna, Austria. Now, the lying-in unit, that's what they used to call the places where women would come to deliver babies. The lying-in unit was divided into two divisions. Division one, where the medical doctors and the medical students did their surgeries, operations, all of the things that they needed to do. The division two was where the midwives delivered the babies. Now, when Ignaz Semmelweis became the division one head clinician, he had a major problem on his hands. And that was that they were losing, during the winter months, 18% of all the women and children that would come into the clinic. That's one out of every six. One, two, three, four, five, six. See, one, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Just lost you. One, two, three, four, five, six. He got a deal yesterday, but he's still finished. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, you start taking one out of every six, and things get very serious. Imagine going into a hospital where you know you've got an 18% chance of dying, and that's in the winter. In the summer, sometimes the death rate was 50%. They would lose one out of two women who came into their clinic. In fact, the women knew that it was so dangerous to have a baby in the Division One lying in unit, they would literally try to have their babies in the gutters of the street because if you had it before you came into the clinic, then you got put into the Division Two lying in unit where the midwives were. And in the midwives clinic, they were only losing about 3%. Now, here's what Ignaz Semmelweis could not figure out. Why? Why are we losing one out of every six, sometimes one out of every two, depending on what the weather is? Why is that happening? Now, he went to the higher-ups who had been in these clinics for years and years, and they said, yeah, it is tragic. But I'll tell you what the problem is. There's a dark cloud of bad luck 
over Vienna. It's called a miasma. And if you just happen to give birth to a kid while the miasma is over Vienna, we can't do anything about that. He said, a dark cloud of bad luck, really. They said, yeah, that's how it's always been. So he writes some letters to the people in Paris. He says, what's your death rate? And they say, oh, about 18%. He writes some letters to people in London. What's your death rate? Oh, about 18%. You mean to tell me there's dark clouds of bad luck everywhere? He says, no, I'm not sure about that. So he decides he's going to find how to stop this. In fact, he said he goes to sleep at night and it is just racking on his mind. It's causing him almost to go crazy. He hears the women and the children screaming in his nightmares and he thinks, how can we stop this? And he goes in one night and he realizes that late at night, well, actually early in the morning, about 2 a.m., if any of the women have died, then they allow the priest to come in and ring a bell to issue their last rites. And he said, you know what I think? I think we might be scaring these women to death. Seriously. He said, from now on, you cannot ring that bell in my clinic. They stopped the bell. What do you think the death rate dropped to? 18%. That's right. Didn't change at all. He said, well, maybe it's because we're, we're causing these women to lie on their backs. Maybe if we put them over on their sides. So he flipped the women over on their sides. Death rate, 18%. He could not figure it out. So... The higher-ups said, look, it's driving you crazy. Semmelweis, you're going nuts. You have to leave the clinic and go get some rest. You've got to relax. You're going to have a nervous breakdown. You're going to go nuts. So for a couple months, I think maybe for about three months, he left, he traveled, and then he came back. And when he came back, here's what he found out. The women had all been dying of the same thing. They, they called it labor, labor fever. Uh, they would just have pus in their eye sockets, pus under their skin. It was just labor fever. That was basically all they knew to call it. Well, when he was gone, one of his doctor friends, Dr. Kolechka, had been doing an autopsy on a dead body, a body that had died of labor fever. And he was showing his class how to do these autopsies, and there was a freshman medical student who was clumsy with a scalpel and somehow had caused Dr. Kolechka to cut his finger. It wasn't a bad cut at all. said it was about an inch long. didn't look life-threatening at all whatsoever, except for the fact that in two weeks, Dr. Kolechka was dead. And they did an autopsy on Dr. Kolechka. And guess what he died of? Well, you couldn't call it labor fever. Because, of course, he wasn't in labor. But the symptoms all looked the exact same. Now, Semmelweis said, maybe, just maybe, we're passing germs or something. The disease is going from these dead women to these live women. And so he went into his clinic, and this is what he saw. Now, if you saw this, you would be so mortified that it would turn your stomach. But here's what he saw. He saw the medical students doing autopsies first thing in the morning. Then they would go to a vat of water that had no germ cleaning agent in it whatsoever and rinse their hands all in the same vat of water with no germ cleaning agent whatsoever, dry their hands on a dirty, bloody towel, and then go do examinations on live women. Now, as a 21st century observer, what's the problem? Oh, yeah, you, you see exactly what the problem is, don't you? He, these students are, are literally passing this disease from one to the other, from the dead bodies to the live women. You see exactly what's going on here. This was 1947. He said, all right, new rule in my clinic. Here's the rule. In my clinic, you do not touch a live person until you have washed your hands in a vat of chlorinated water 
and dried your hands on a, teen, on a clean towel. You cannot touch a live woman unless you do that. He said, you're nuts. Did you know what will smell? Chlorine all the time. And they said, do you know how many times a day we'll have to wash our hands? This is ridiculous. They called him Dr. Clean Freak. Said he was a wacko. In fact, they would act like they were washing their hands and they wouldn't. Well, the death rate dropped to less than 1%. The very few women that died, they traced it to where the people who were supposed to be changing their sheets just thought it was so absurd that you should change the sheets after every person that they wouldn't do it. And the people who were supposed to be washing their hands just thought that washing your hands every single time you touched a live woman was ridiculous, and so they would not. Well, Semmelweis would just get up in these people's faces. He would scream at them and say, you're killing these people. Well, they thought he was they thought he was crazy. He implemented washing your hands and drying them on a clean, dry towel, and the death rate plummeted to less than one percent. You know what the higher up said? Well, looks like the miasma moved out. Lucky us. No more cloud of bad luck. They kicked Semmelweis out of the clinic. Say, look, you're you're Causing too much problems. You're yelling at the students. you got no real personal interaction skills here. People think you're crazy. We all smell like chlorine. This is ridiculous. We're sending you to another clinic. They shipped him back out to Budapest. Sent him to Budapest to a little bitty clinic in Budapest. He implemented the exact same procedures. Death rate dropped to less than 1%. If I understand it correctly, Semmelweis spent the rest of his life Writing letters to people, telling them that you're passing diseases from dead bodies to live women, and nobody paid a single ounce of attention to him until after he was dead. And that's in 1847. 150 years ago, 60. Now you say, come on, we we should have known stuff like that. Oh, well, if you read Numbers chapter 19, at first you might not realize how significant it is. Start in Numbers chapter 19. And look in chapter 19, verse 2. This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect. So here's a kind of an odd rule. You bring this red heifer. Now look at verse 3. Give it to Eliezer the priest that he can take it outside the camp and kill it. All right? You take this red heifer, you take it outside the camp, you kill it. And then what happens? Look at verse 5. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood, hyssop, scarlet, and cast them into the middle of the fire, burning the heifer. All right, so you got some real kind of odd rules here. All right, take this red heifer, and you burn it up, and you throw cedar wood and scarlet wool and hyssop in this fire. And then, what do you do? Okay, then, as you watch right here, it says, verse 9, Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp, in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. Weird. All right, you burn this heifer with cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet wool, and then somebody collects the ashes, and you put it outside the camp in a clean place, and you put those ashes in water for the water of purification. Well, and then what do you do with that water? Okay, uh, let's see. Verse 11, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, then he'll be clean. But if he doesn't purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he won't be clean. 
Okay, you take these ashes, you dump them in water, then you take this water and you, if someone's touched a dead body, you scrub them with this water using hyssop on the third day after they've touched the dead body, and then you wait four days and on the seventh day you scrub them with this water again. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Ah, until you start seeing what the significance of that is. Uh, let's analyze that just for a second. When you were, uh, I don't know if you remember when you were in fourth grade, but when I was in fourth grade, we learned that you couldn't just go down to Walmart and buy soap when you were just getting here as a Puritan or as one of the first settlers in an area. There was no Walmart. And so if you wanted soap, you made it. What's the main ingredient in soap that the Puritans or settlers used to make? Lye. Do you know how to make lye soap? Well, you take some type of wood, oh, let's just say like cedar, and you burn it, and then you take the ashes, and you put it in a filter. You let, in a funnel rather, you let the rainwater wash through it, and you catch the water that's washed through the ash mixture, and guess what you've got? Lye. And then you take that lye, and you put it in a vat of animal fat, and you stir it up, you let the vat of animal fat sit, and then you cut it into blocks, and you use that for soap. Guess what the water of purification would have had in it? Lime. Oh, and uh, hyssop. The plant that you burn and put in there, and then the plant that you use to administer the water of purification, it says you take hyssop and that's what you use to put it on the person. How many of you have ever used Listerine? Now, I quit that practice a long time ago because, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly tough guy. I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, I don't know how tough I really am, but uh, I decided I was going to throw down some Listerine and I was going to make sure I kept it in my mouth for quite some time. And you know, I think I hit 1.3 seconds. And that's about as all, all I could do with Listerine. My dad used to have Listerine and I thought, what is this stuff? Do you know why Listerine burns your mouth? There is an alcohol in Listerine. It's called thymol. The reason it's burning your mouth is just the same as if you took alcohol and dumped it in your eyeball because that thymol is killing stuff in your mouth. What's it killing in your mouth? Germs and bacteria. Thymol happens to be a bactericide and a germicide. It kills germs and bacteria. It's an alcohol. Oh, so hyssop, the exact same plant that you burned and put in the water and then you used to administer on the person, it has thymol in it, the same germ-killing agent that Listerine has. Oh, by the way, uh, what, who's Listerine named after? Joseph Lister. What did Joseph Lister do? He found a way to sterilize surgical instruments because germs were being passed. And so he realized that you could use alcohol to kill bacteria that was causing infection in people when you were doing surgeries. Okay, so and then you've got the scarlet wool. You ever worn a wool shirt or wool pants when it's kind of, uh, oh, it's middle, it's kind of cool, but if you were a little kid and you had a pair of wool pants on and you were running around after church, what did those wool pants do? They felt great. They were so soft and cuddly. No, they weren't. Whoever invented those just wanted to torture small 10-year-olds who wanted to play football outside because you would itch and just, boy, just terrible. Now, if you work on anything real greasy and grimy, uh, there are probably two soap recipe, soap uh, soaps that you use to get grease and grime off of your hands. What are the what are the real hard scrubbing soaps you use? Ivory's not going to do it. What is it? Lava and what? What's the other one? Gojo? You guys use Gojo up here? Okay, lava and Gojo. What's the texture of lava and Gojo? It's gritty, isn't it? Why? So that little grit will get down in your 
fingerprints will get in your fingernails, etc. What's going to happen if you take wool and you burn it into tiny little fibers and then you take those ashes and you dump them in water when you put it on a person? What are they going to have to do? Scrub and scrub and scrub to get that off. And so on day three, you take this water purification that's got lye, thymol, and wool fibers that have been burned so that they're tiny and you have to scrub and you scrub yourself on the third day. Then you wait four days. Why? Well, because bacteria grows best in warm, moist areas. If you wait four days, you get totally dry. And then you use the water of purification again on the seventh day. And Moses said, if you don't do that and you touch a dead body, then you cannot touch a live body in all of Israel. Do you understand what I'm telling you? If the people in 1847 would have done nothing more then exactly what Moses had said, would they have saved the lives of literally millions of people? Yeah. And and this is just written by some guy in 1450 B.C. that didn't have any type of divine leading at all. He was just picking up his information from all of the doctors around him. Doesn't make a lick of sense at all, does it? I've got a whole lesson on the food consumption laws. It takes me about an hour to do. I love it. It's so exciting. This kind of material is the most fun, in my opinion, because you can do it all day long. There's one after another, after another, after another example of this. Folks, I believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God, not because i got a warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart, but because it has been proven by many infallible proofs over and over and over again. Last eve, I passed beside the blacksmith's door. And I heard the anvil ring the vespers chime. And looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all those hammers? So, just one, said he. And then with a twinkling eye, he said... The anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought the anvil of God's Word for years the skeptic's blows have beat upon. Yet though the sound of crashing blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed. The hammers are all gone. When Jesus Christ said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What he simply meant by that was that this book is pure truth. It will always be, and it has always been. And there will come a time when the heavens will be rolled back as a scroll and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be dissolved, according to Second Peter chapter 3. And he says, therefore, knowing this, what kind of persons should we be? If we know that this book will never, ever be done away with, and it has been true since the day that it was uttered, and it will be true until the Lord comes back, then shouldn't we seriously take to heart Statements like we find in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, where the Bible says that Jesus Christ is coming back with His angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on those who know not God and who obey not the gospel. Have you obeyed 
the gospel of Jesus Christ this afternoon. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what consists. That's what the gospel consists of. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 3, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. How do you obey that? Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and following. Don't you know as many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into His death. And just as Christ rose from the grave, the text says that we rise from the grave of baptism to walk a new life. Have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you have not, why not? Take the opportunity this afternoon as we stand and as we sing. Son 